Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. I especially want to thank you for checking out this episode because it's episode number one. Whether you're with us from the beginning or you're digging through the archives, it means a lot that you would take the time to listen to this episode. Before we jump into our interview for today, I do want to tell you a little bit about myself and the program since we are brand new. As I said, my name is Dan Wunderlich and I'm a United Methodist pastor. I've served in college campus ministry as well as the local church, and then earlier this year my family made a move from Florida to North Georgia, and the Florida Conference of the Methodist Church gave me the opportunity to try a new kind of ministry. And so I'm officially what's known as an extension minister, which means I do my work outside the walls of the local church. You can learn more about that ministry at defininggrace.com, but part of that work is this podcast. And so Art of the Sermon is a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. Whether you speak to large Large groups or small groups or simply sit across the table from people and share a meal or a cup of coffee. No matter what our job title or volunteer title is or whether we even have one, if we're people of faith, we have a responsibility to share what God is doing in our lives and in the world around us. You see, we're not simply stewards of God's creation, but of God's creativity as well. And what is the core of God's creativity? Well, when the scriptures tell us the story of creation, it paints a picture of God who makes everything by speaking and we have been invited and called to join in that process. And so at the beginning of each month, we'll feature an interview with a preacher, a teacher, or a communicator. Sometimes they're pastors, sometimes they may be people that don't even work inside the church, but they're all going to be people we can learn from and gain encouragement from. And then in the middle of the month, we'll do an episode where we reflect on the conversation that we had. If there's any listener feedback out there, you want to share reactions that you had or ideas that you had to build on what we talked about, we'll incorporate that into the show, as well as touching on other aspects of preaching and church communications that we find interesting. At the end of today's episode, I'll let you know how you can connect with the show and send us your feedback, but know that you can always find information and show notes at artofthesermon.com. And now, without further ado, our first interview with Reverend McGray DeVega. Well, I am really excited to welcome in today Reverend McGray DeVega, the senior pastor at Hyde Park United Methodist Church in Tampa, Florida. McGray, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be with you, Dan. Thanks for asking. Yeah, absolutely. Before we jump into the meat of the preaching topic, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry there at Hyde Park? Sure. Well, I'm the senior pastor here at Hyde Park United Methodist Church here in Tampa. Uh, This is actually the second stint that I uh, served here in this church. I was the associate pastor from 2000 to 2007. And then in 2007, uh, my family and I uh, moved to Iowa, where I was on loan in the Iowa conference, to serve a wonderful small church in Cherokee, Iowa. And then uh, back in July, so July of this year, 2015, uh, the bishop reappointed me to come back and serve as senior pastor here at Hyde Park, where I've been uh, now for the past, uh, going on three months. So it's been a wonderful homecoming, and great to be part of familiar faces and familiar ministry, uh, and just great to be back here in Florida. Yeah, and you have a very sort of unique appointment, at least in the way that things normally go, and that the United Methodist Church, you don't generally tend to jump from associate pastor to senior pastor or to come back, but Hyde Park is a, is a unique ministry location, and it's also you're sort of transitioning from 
a long tenure by Jim Harnish there, uh, who you served under for a while. What is it like to take over the reins from someone that poured so much into you? Oh, it's quite an honor. Uh, you're definitely right that it is rare for an associate pastor to be asked to come back and be the senior pastor. Uh, and I think that uh, Bishop Carter's appointment of me to be the senior pastor says less about me and really more about the significance of Hyde Park to the conference and to the connectional system, that they really felt like they wanted someone who uh, had the sense of the history of the Church, the unique DNA and theological heritage of the Church, and a deep appreciation of what Jim had done here in this congregation for over 20 years. And they needed someone with that kind of continuity to carry it into the future. So I just happen to be that person, uh, but really it speaks to the significance of this church, uh, to the conference and to the connection. Uh, regardless, I'm uh, extremely grateful and humbled to be serving in this position and uh, give thanks certainly for, for Jim's influence, which is ongoing here uh, Yes, absolutely. And I look forward to having Jim as a future guest on our program. He's already promised to be with us, and we'll be sure to ask him about his perspective on how the church went from what it was to what it is today. But as you step in as the new senior pastor, can you give our listeners a picture of what the church and ministry look like to you? Sure. Hyde Park is essentially an urban congregation right in the heart of downtown Tampa. It, in the 90s, uh, was a typical urban downtown congregation, which means that it had plateaued, it had uh, really lost a sense of who it was and what it was called to be, Uh, and under Jim's leadership, it claimed not only its future, but its calling as a mainline Wesleyan congregation, which means that it learned to articulate for itself and for the surrounding community what the best of Wesleyan Christianity is about, which is a center field thoughtful, open-minded, warm-hearted, centrist kind of Christianity, that when it learned to articulate it, it uh, reached out to a lot of people, uh, many of which were unchurched or formally churched, who were looking for an expression of Christianity uh, like what was being offered at Hyde Park, whether they realized it or not. Right. And so that kind of vision of what uh, mainline Wesleyanism can offer to people has really fueled Hyde Park's growth and its health and vitality. Uh, it is It serves not only the people of uh, suburban South Tampa, but it reaches all throughout the county and both beyond, and has most importantly engaged in incredible acts of mission, service, and social justice Uh, addressing issues both in this community and all around the world. So I would say that the key characteristics that distinguish Hyde Park from other congregations is that it is open-minded, which means open to a diversity of ideas, warm-hearted, which means open to a diversity of people, and definitely mission-oriented, which means it cares about making God's love real to people beyond the church walls. Uh, and I think when people have experienced that firsthand uh, in and through the church community, they've really responded to it. 
that's great. And I would imagine that a lot of churches aspire to have that, or at least would like to describe themselves that way. Putting it in practice is a lot more of a challenge, which is a testament to, to Jim's leadership and the bishop's vision for what you'll do there. And hopefully this transitions well into the next question. What is your philosophy and approach to preaching? I would imagine that a lot of how you describe the congregation would describe uh, your approach to preaching if you were the one that the bishop saw as fit to lead there. I appreciate that. Uh, one of my guiding principles in preaching is that there is always a surprising word that God has to tell us through the Scriptures. And oftentimes that surprising word is something that we didn't realize that we needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that oftentimes preachers go into a sermon or develop sermon series to try to address concerns that people know that they have. So yeah. we develop sermon series like how to have a better life or how to have a better marriage or how to have the the kind of career that you want. This kind of um, self-help kind of preaching is widely popular, but oftentimes the most powerful moments in the Scripture, the most poignant moments in a sermon, are when God surprises us with words that we don't even realize we need to hear. Mm. And so I try to largely stay away from that kind of self-help preaching anymore, although I'm not going to promise I'll never do it again, (laughs) because it's so intoxicating to do that kind of preaching. But by and large, uh, we try to do preaching around here that really encourages people to look at the Christian life in a surprising way and to reformat their lives from thinking about things they thought were important to things that are of kingdom importance. And it's those kinds of paradigm-shifting, surprising insights from the Scripture that shock us that I think make, uh, that can make the preaching moment so powerful. That's really great. And how do you keep your pulse on where you feel your congregation is and where those moments of surprise can come from? Well, one of the things that I was involved in when I was the associate pastor was that I was responsible for the worship planning process that uh, started with selection of scriptures months before Sunday on through the various lay teams and staff teams uh, to put together each and every worship service. So, uh, one of the things that we have continued and, and to some degree revitalized since my uh, return as the senior pastor is to go back to planning worship series and planning sermons and services as team. So we include all sorts of feedback now uh, at every level of implementation from clergy and staff and non-staff lay people so that even when it comes to developing the spiritual direction and the thematic content of upcoming Sundays, we try to do it thoughtfully with a careful discernment of what lay people in the congregation are sensing. Uh, It's not incumbent entirely on me to figure out what the felt need of the congregation is, because if it was, I have a I have a very limited capacity to know what everybody's thinking and feeling <laughs> right. at the same time. So we, we try to involve as many people as possible at every stage of sermon planning and implementation so that we could have a, a wide spectrum of understanding of where the congregation is as we're approaching every aspect of service planning. 
and that certainly speaks to the idea that the Holy Spirit doesn't simply work in and through the senior pastor. But absolutely, uh, and right. as you and I are both United Methodist pastors, we have the itinerant system, which we move around, and a lot of folks not in the itinerant system maybe ask questions as to why we do that or why we still do that. But one of the the cornerstones of that is that we believe the people are the ministers, and that we're just mm. the pastors and leaders. And so I think this is yet another way to sort of embody that uh, principle. That's right. We are people of the book. We are people of one book. And so even though the ordained clergy have a unique role in proclaiming the Word, it is a Word that is communally shared. All of us are recipients of it together. We're interpreters together. And it's all incumbent upon us to carry out the messages that God shares with us through, through the Scriptures. You're absolutely right. Well, speaking of books, we are the people of one book, and yet we all have bookshelves loaded down with many books. And one of the books that I would recommend uh, those listening check out is your brand new book, Awaiting the Already, an Advent Journey Through the Gospels. Now, you have been published in lots of different forms, but if I'm not mistaken, this is your first Reverend McGray de Vega book with your name splashed across the cover. (laughs) I still can't believe it. Yes, it's my first uh, solo title, as Uh, it were. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Uh, Well, the idea for the book came from the publishing house. They asked me, uh, based on their relationship with me on uh, working on Covenant Bible Study, uh, they asked me to consider writing the adult Bible study, the Bible study for adult groups, uh, the thematic Bible study for 2015. And they really left it up to me, and very open-ended as to what kind of theme or connecting thread I wanted to write about for my Advent study. They basically just said, we need five chapters, it needs to be about Advent, and I, beyond that, I could choose the subject material, the scriptures, and, and go from there. Uh, I follow uh, on the heels of many wonderful authors who are much more profound and prolific than I am, including Jim Harnish who wrote one not too, not too long ago. Uh, but when it came time for me to think about what I wanted to write and communicate in a Bible study for Advent, the idea of, of Advent being a season that we celebrate in its arrival, but also acknowledge its preexistence, was really intriguing to me. Uh, hence the title, Awaiting the Already. One of the challenges that preachers often have when approaching Advent is that we talk about the imminent arrival of Jesus Christ, that we are observing the arrival of Jesus in our midst in the form of a baby, even though in the background and all along the way we know that Jesus has already arrived 2,000 years ago. And in fact, according to Matthew and other parts of the Bible, Jesus is always with us. So it's always an interesting theological dance that we have to enter into in Advent, that we have to, first of all, anticipate the arrival of a Jesus who, in fact, is already here. And that was my guiding uh, interpretive lens as I entered into these Advent writings. What do each of the Gospel writers say to reconcile this idea that we are to wait for a Jesus to return who, in fact, already came and is always with us. And so it's basically a survey of the differences among the four Gospel writers. I begin with Mark, since that's the earliest Gospel written, and I talk about the Advent narrative in Mark, which, even though we don't normally talk about Mark, 
uh, in terms of a Jesus birth narrative. There's certainly some Advent material there in the first chapter. Then we go to Matthew, and then to Luke, and then to John, and then the fifth chapter is a Christmas Eve message based on the Pauline epistles that are selected for Christmas Eve, the lectionary text for Christmas Eve. My ultimate goal in writing the book and in having folks experience the book is that when they finish it, they will know what parts of the Christmas story come from which Gospels. So that if folks will simply have an understanding that when you talk about, for example, uh, the visit of Mary by the angel, they'll know that came from Luke. Or when you talk about Herod uh, or Joseph's dream, that that will have come from Matthew. Or when you want a full disclosure of John the Baptist, the, the urgency of John the Baptist's message, you, you look at Mark. Or if you want the most poetic description of the incarnation of Jesus that we're talking about, John. I think oftentimes when we think of the Christmas story, we think about it as all one narrative that we've sort of threaded together, yeah. when in fact all four Gospel writers have four very different uh, angles on the, the birth of Jesus, and the careful way in which they select their perspectives for the main characters of that story reveals a lot about their theology and reveals a lot about how they reconcile that tension between a Jesus who is coming and a Jesus who's already here. We do a lot of John readings on uh, Christmas Eve about mm-hmm. you know how the, the darkness cannot overcome the light. Those are familiar verses, but yet if you were to ask someone to describe the Christmas story, they're mostly going to be swinging from uh, Matthew and Luke. And so I, I think the overall theme and the lens is going to give folks the ability to maybe pay closer attention when you have those Mark readings or when you have those John readings this Advent to realize that we're talking about the same thing thematically, uh, but from a much broader scale. You're absolutely right. And I, I don't know how you can do Advent without talking about John the Baptist. And while John the Baptist is mentioned in multiple Gospels, I think the best, the best example of John the Baptist's message is in Mark, because it leads with the message from John, and with a kind of urgency and immediacy that kind of grabs your attention from the very beginning. And to some degree, that's what we need in Advent. We need something or someone to shake us by the shoulders and wake us up and have us snap out of a sort of culturized Christmas, a commercialized Christmas, and help us focus on the things that are most important. That's what John the Baptist message is, and that's why Mark is an important gospel to include in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. And now you sound very passionate about Advent, which I would hope so, having completed and published a book. Is Advent a season that's always been one that's been special to you? Yes, absolutely. It, it, it's always been special as a child, like most children, because it points toward Christmas. But as I've gone through my years in ministry, I've taken a particular liking and seriousness to Advent simply because it has been drowned out so consistently by a commercialized, plasticized version of Christmas that is so rampant in our culture today. It is so tempting, and I say this in the book, to skip right from Thanksgiving right to Christmas morning. Yeah, Our retail establishments, our holiday advertisers would want us to do that, and in fact, our worship services by and large have fallen prey to that, given how often we 
prefer to sing Christmas carols during Advent, <laughs> which I'm guilty of and yeah. I, I love. <laughs> but it uh, it does mean that we often skip right past the waiting and the patience that is important in order to fully prepare for the arrival of Jesus. And that kind of patience and waiting is exactly what our souls need in order to create breathing space for the Spirit to do its work within our lives. So Advent is an important season of preparation that we have to do soberly, that we can do with celebration, but we have to do it very carefully in order to really know what Christmas is all about. Exactly. And and we have a similar season, obviously, in Lent, which leads up to Easter. And Easter mm-hmm. and Christmas Eve are two of the most uh, well-attended uh, church mm-hmm. services throughout the year. And yet, if there's any sort of bump one direction or another, it tends to be after the event has happened. Someone comes to church <laughs> and you pull out you know, your best sermon of the year, and they think, this guy's pretty great. And then they check you out for maybe another two Sundays, and then they decide to sleep in. Uh, but <laughs> so it seems like we, we lead up to this momentous moment that we have been preparing for, and then yet half to three quarters of the folks there have not been on that journey with us. Do you, do you find a unique challenge to preaching Advent and, and Christmas Eve specifically? Sure. That's, first of all, during the month of December, the attention capital that is available to average people in the pew is quite limited because our attention is diversified by all the distractions that are happening within our lives and families and workplaces and, and the culture at large that are trying to get our attention during the holiday season. Uh, so it, it's hard, in some ways, to preach a message during Advent that alerts people to the importance of slowing down and paying attention. And that's not always a popular message. Uh, and so people tend to shy away from messages like that. But when they hear them, and when they contrast that with the busyness and the noise that is out there during the month of December... My sense is that they really do uh, find it an important and attractive message, that there is importance in silence and listening for the work of the Spirit. Um, So that when people give it a shot and they come to an Advent sermon, and if the service is done well and if the Scriptures are treated seriously, People really do respond well to those kinds of Advent messages, and they they find that that's the message they need to hear, like I said, whether they realize it or not. Exactly. Well, and we in the church too can be really guilty of ramping things up around Christmas time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I know uh, there were some times uh, when I was a local church pastor that I wanted to sort of cancel everything in December that wasn't <laughs> worship. But how, how far do you normally plan out your sermons? You spoke earlier about being months in advance, and do you take special seasons like Advent or like Lent and and give them an even further head start? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I've discovered that when you're dealing with worship staff, particularly music directors, you can't give them enough advance notice of what's coming up. And so at Hyde Park, we do our Advent planning months in advance. So for example, uh, back in August, we did all of our sermon series planning for the four Sundays in Advent and Christmas Eve in October. We will be doing our sermon series planning for Lent and for Easter, because Lent is early again, uh, like it often is. Uh, and so by the end of those planning sessions, 
about four months in advance, we will at least have the title of the sermon series, the scriptures for those Sundays, and at least a rough idea of the thematic direction of each of those Sundays. We'll drill down with deeper details as we move the planning process along, but at least four months out, our music directors and our worship staff have an idea of the direction of the series and the content of those Sundays so that they can be intentional about selecting music that fits those themes and practice them with their music ensembles early enough to where they feel best prepared for what's coming up. When I first arrived back in 2000 as the associate pastor in charge of worship planning, we used to do sermon uh, series, uh, we used to do series planning on the Monday morning of the upcoming Sunday <laughs> with yeah. all hands on deck, the preachers, the, the worship team, all of them. And it was just chaos. It was madness. Uh, there was no way to give everybody the kind of information they needed well enough in advance when we were looking at Sundays just six days out. Exactly. So we've, 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 come, a, we've come away since those days uh, because we feel like while the Spirit has much freedom to be spontaneous, and we expect surprises in worship, uh, we want to do our part to be as prepared as possible on our end. Exactly, exactly. And now yeah. Advent, of course, is a season that comes around every year. Um, how do you keep it fresh for yourself, and how do you keep the experience fresh for your congregation? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it does change every year, and one of the ways to keep it fresh is that we usually begin as a worship planning team with the question, why is it that people need to be a part of Advent this year? What is it about the human condition this year, uh, individually, in our congregation, in our culture, in the world? How would we best describe the need for Jesus this Advent season? The human condition, what's the felt need? Uh, we usually begin there. Um, because that is, Advent is the season in which we address the kinds of deep soul-searching and uh, discernment that is necessary for us to create new breathing space for Jesus to come into. Uh, and so I think it's fair to say that even though this Advent, we're telling many of the same stories that we've always told, this is a very different world, and we are still very different people than we were a year ago. And you simply need to look at the most recent news headlines and to take a look at the, the people in the pews and realize that even though it's the same old story, the old, old story, uh, we are still a different people with a different set of needs than we were last year. So, uh, for example, this coming Advent, we uh, really centered on the story of the birth of Jesus taking place uh, in the stable because there was no room at the inn. And so we began our prayerful discernment of Advent this year asking the question, in what ways is there no room for mm. Jesus this year? How are we called to make room for Jesus and to make room for people who have been shut out into the fringes and marginalized from experiencing Jesus. And that, that just launched a whole wonderful, rich discussion about ways that we as a church need to make room for others 
and make room for Jesus within our lives. And so the, the title, the sermon series title for this Advent is Making Room, uh, and how, how we're called to uh, make room at the end for Jesus to be born into our lives again. With the time we have left, I have a set of questions that I like to ask all of the guests. And, and the first one I'll let you choose, uh, since we're running out of time here, I'll let you choose. Uh, is there Was there a, a sermon or a sermon series or a topic that you have found difficult to preach on, or is there maybe a preaching or teaching experience uh, that's one of your favorites that you look back on fondly? Oh, well, that's a great question. You know, one of my most original ideas for sermon series, and there, there's lots of them, um, but one of my most memorable ones was during Advent. Talk about me being pigeonholed. <laughs> so I did an Advent series one year on the period of time between the Testaments, between mm. the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and so I covered a lot of material that is not only in the apocryphal part of the Bible, but also the empires and the, the ways that uh, the the powers of the world shifted between the time of the Israelites and the time of the Jews. And I just found that to be a really educational, informative time for me to explore that, and I, I hope helpful for the congregation. That sounds really interesting, and it, and it sounds like I think we— we have this idea of it being sort of like a television season, like, okay, we wrapped it right. up, now we're just going to pick it up. But there's there's a quite a bit that happens there in between, and it shifts right. the context. Awesome. A lot of change. Uh, who have been some of the most impactful preachers uh, or even, you know, non-pastors, communicators in your life, and, and why have they been important to you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, in some ways, who I am as a preacher is the cumulative result of all the good preachers that I've ever heard in my life, beginning from childhood. I went to a private Christian school, um, a fundamentalist school by and large, and so I've, I've learned to reframe a lot of who I was back then. But one of the things that's really stuck with me is the fact that every Thursday morning we were required to go to chapel and hear another preacher from around the area in our town. And I learned to listen quite a bit to what I thought were effective preachers and I suppose that one of the ways that I have learned to deliver my sermons is that I've learned to mimic, perhaps very subconsciously, uh, the kinds of deliveries that I found effective. Um, along with that, I, I learned to listen quite a bit to some radio preachers that I really loved when I was in my teenage years, like Chuck Swindoll and Jack Hayford. I love their strong delivery their conversational style, and so every once in a while, I'll hear myself echoing what I've heard there. Uh, but most recently, um, I've really loved listening to folks like Tom Long and Barbara Brown Taylor. They're sort of like the rock stars of mainline preaching today. Right. Yeah. And so those times that I've been able to attend the Festival of Homiletics, uh, which is an annual uh, rotating kind of festival of the the country's best preachers. I've uh, enjoyed going to hear that and and hearing who the next uh, the current great preachers are. Uh, and I've of course been blessed to be working alongside terrific preachers, Jim Harnish, and others here at Hyde Park, who I've just uh, learned to really appreciate. But I think through it all, uh, hopefully, I continue to hone my own voice which is an earnest kind of conversational and thoughtful voice 
but it's still an amalgamation of a lot of wonderful, effective preachers that I've heard in my own life. Well, and that's how we learn to speak in general during our right. development as kids is we learn to imitate. And I think we pull the pieces that we like. And, and I always say, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not that we are so totally different, but we're, we're a unique uh, sort of amalgamation of all the sources that have poured into us. Um, right. and, and speaking exactly. of those sources, are there any books, uh, either uh, preaching texts or non-preaching texts that have been influential in your preaching? Well, one is a great preaching book, uh, and another one is just a great pastoral ministry book. Um, I, I'll i start with the latter. Um, I heard from our, our mutual friend, Sue Halpert Johnson, once, that after a minister has been in the ministry for five years, he or she really needs to read the book Under the Unpredictable Plant by Eugene Peterson. And it's just a wonderful book that, that recalibrates our image of pastoral ministry away from what uh, corporate churches would want us to be as CEOs, and once again redirected towards being about the good news of the gospel for the sake of people. So Under the Unpredictable Plant uh, by Eugene Peterson is a great one. There are actually two books uh, by Tom Long uh, that I've really enjoyed. One is in regards to preaching, uh, and it's called The Witness to Preaching, and it's a required text in seminary, but really opened my mind to the real treasure that preaching can be. But his most recent book on theodicy, What Then Shall We Say? Uh, mm. The Problem of Suffering and Evil, which is no small topic, and it's probably the most widely uh, asked question that preachers get, certainly that I get nowadays, in terms of how we deal with suffering and evil. Um, his treatment of it as both a pastor and a preacher is thoughtful, comprehensive. Um, I like his conclusions, and I love the way he expresses it. So it's it's recommended reading on my list uh, in terms of not only theodicy, uh, but the work of a pastor and a preacher in general. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you said, you you pull. Uh, from your congregation. And so being able to have conversations that uh, answer the questions, I think, can probably open up the floodgates to see what else is in there. Uh, Absolutely. And, and that's great. Absolutely. And lastly, before we let you go, is there any way that our listeners out there could maybe say hi or connect with you online and let you know how much they're loving your new book? Oh, sure. That'd be great. Uh, they can email me at mdevega at hydeparkumc.org. Or they can uh, tweet me at um, at M. DeVega. They can also find me on Facebook, McGray DeVega. Uh, or they can certainly find out about the wonderful, rich ministries of Hyde Park United Methodist Church by visiting HydeParkUMC.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, McGray, for being here. Thank you for your time and for your wisdom. And uh, we really look forward to digging into that book. That's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it, episode one of Art of the Sermon. I hope that you enjoyed it and got as much out of our conversation with McGray as I did. You can find full show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. You can also connect with the show through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. 
I would love for you to use those channels to send me feedback. What did you think about the show and specifically what McGray shared with us today? I will usually incorporate listener feedback into the mid-month episodes that reflect and build on our interviews, but I'm doing something kind of special since it's the launch. I'm releasing three episodes all at once. This interview, the reflection episode, and an interview with Reverend Chad Brooks. But don't worry, I still want to hear what you think about our conversation with McGray. Use those channels to send in your thoughts and I'll incorporate some of them into the mid-month episode that's coming in just a couple weeks. But be sure to check out episode two as it includes a deleted scene of sorts from our conversation with McGray where he shares what he learned from spending a week with Eugene Peterson. If you'd like to support the show, leave a review on our podcast page in the iTunes store. It lets them know how much you appreciate the show and want others to know about it. This is how people like you find shows like this one. And make sure you subscribe so that new episodes are downloaded immediately as soon as they come out. Huge thank you again to Reverend McGray DeVega for his time and wisdom. And thank you for joining us on the very first episode of Art of the Sermon.